and welcome to episode 209 of the Unauthorized History of the Pacific War podcast. My name is Seth Paradin, historian and deputy director of the Mississippi Armed Forces Museum here at Camp Shelby. And with me, as always, is my esteemed co-host, retired Navy Captain Bill Toady, former skipper of the Fast Attack Submarine USS Indianapolis, Commodore Submarine Squadron 3 of Pearl Harbor, and many other assignments. How are you this morning, Bill? I'm doing well, Seth, and uh, getting the house more set up. So little by little, we're getting yeah, that's never a fun task, and I uh, I wish you all the all the good luck in the world. <laughs> Thank you. So, uh, so this week, Bill and I are going to dive into a campaign that is, at least in my opinion, uh, has the best name in the Pacific War. That being Toenails. Uh, all joking aside, Toenails was the code name for the campaign in and around the island of New Georgia. Campaign for New Georgia and the land battles that were a part of it were among the first major offensives taken, undertaken by the Allies and the Solomons since Guadalcanal had officially been declared as secure in February 1943. Uh, New Georgia was also the first time that the combined leadership team of Admiral William F. Halsey and General Douglas MacArthur, a very unlikely duo, uh, unleashed itself on the Japanese. The ultimate goal of the New Georgia campaign was the capture of, wait for it, no surprise here, an airfield that the Japanese were using at Munda or building and then using at Munda Point. Uh, the reasoning behind this was that by capturing the airfield at Munda and turning it against its builders, the airfield would, airfield would thereby provide further aerial support for the eventual invasion of Bougainville and further reduce the Japanese presence at the almighty base of Rabaul. The fighting in and around New Georgia would see the deployment of several joint United States Army, United States Marine Corps fighting formations and would prove to be a sort of, well, proving ground for inter-service operations that would take place in the future places at locations like Saipan, Okinawa, and others. Uh, like New Guinea and Guadalcanal before, uh, New Georgia would also see fresh green American infantry, infantry units receive their baptism of fire and sometimes wilt in the face of said fire, but nevertheless eventually prevail. So, Bill, New Georgia is a campaign that is not talked about very often, and that's something that we like to do on this particular podcast is mm -hmm. what well, we talk about the popular history like midway and things like that but uh you know we like to focus on some of the events that that weren't quite as popular that people don't know everything that there is to know about because they do all of them generally have a far-reaching effect on other campaigns as the war progresses right yeah you know um the, the funny thing is we're going to try something new here um since i'm playing the role of john madden Let's go to the videotape. Isn't that something John used to always say? <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> We're going to, yeah, we. one of our big complaints here, that's not the right the screen. Here we go. One of our big complaints here from readers and lists and viewers is that we need maps. We hear that all the time. We want maps. And so it's tough because we do these podcasts on a weekly basis. And to edit in maps to demonstrate everything that we're talking about would take two or three days per episode. So we've been kind of reluctant to do that in a post-production environment. So maybe if the viewers and listeners, this is for the viewers, I'm afraid, listeners, apologies to begin with in advance, because you're not going to see the maps, but the viewers will, the YouTube folks. And so... We're going to try to do this in a live format with we're going to go to the maps 
live and, and recorded in real time. And hopefully by so doing, substantially reduce the post-production burden, most of which goes to Seth. So trying to help, um, you know, avoid that kind of thing. Is that okay, Seth? Sounds good to me, man. Let's do it. And, and so what I'm showing here is just a Google Maps version of, of where New Georgia is, because as Seth says, not only is there a forgotten battle, but folks have a hard time finding it. Now, I'm going to go, if you go to the bottom right, I hope you can see my mouse here. You mm -hmm. see the Solomon Islands. Yeah, that, that's, that's actually Guadalcanal, which we've talked about a great deal, right? So, and this little tiny dot here is Savo Island for perspective. And if you go up the slot, this is the slot we've talked about so many times. What you're going to find here is Santa Isabel right here. And New Georgia is this island here with Vela La Vela, which you'll hear about quite a bit. And up to the upper left is Bougainville, which we talked about in the episode where we talked about Yamamoto getting shot down, because that happened up here in Bougainville. So New Georgia Island. And if I zoom in on that a bit, you see Olambagara here, which you're, we're going to talk about quite a bit today. And New Georgia proper here, and then Munda, which is going to be the main objective right here. But we're going to also talk about Rendova, which is south of Munda, right here. So hopefully this will help folks put things into perspective. And we're going to also talk about this, um, and I wouldn't even try to pronounce the, the point, Nuganondo point, and Enage Inlet here, mm -hmm. which is going to be part of our discussion and then as we progress, we've got a battle map we can refer to as well. So hopefully that gives folks some visual context as to where we're, we're talking about here. By the way, there's wonderful modern videos on YouTube that show the battlegrounds in New Georgia as they exist today. It's still a very, very primitive place, mm -hmm. very hard to get to. But, but we'll keep that as background and, and jump right into our battle talking points. Um, does that work, Seth? That works for me, man. It, every little bit helps. That's for dang sure. And I think, you know, to, to, to your point and to, to the viewers' points, maps are important. There's no doubt. Yeah, you know, because we're talking about literally the largest campaign, not, not, not New Georgia, but the Pacific War, the largest campaign in the history of humankind. And I am fully aware that maps are, 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 you know, almost a necessity. So hopefully this will, you know, ease some of those um, comments and some of those uh, requests for maps. So we'll, we're doing the best we can. So to that end, why the hell New Georgia in the first place? So the Imperial Army, Japanese Army, uh, had captured New Georgia in early 1942. This was part of what John Parshall talked about them punching into a vacuum and just basically grabbing everything that they could get their hands on in terms of land acquisitions and territorial acquisitions in, in the early part of 1942. Um Almost immediately after capturing New Georgia, the Japanese began construction of an airfield at Munda Point, which is at the southeastern portion to what Bill had showed here in the map there uh, of the island. The purpose of this airfield was to support further operations against Guadalcanal. Now, the Japanese were keenly aware of the growing uh, American aerial 
strength in Guadalcanal as early as, you know, September 1942, hence the reason they were continuously attacking the airfield. Um, clearing of the area around Munda Point and construction of the field actually began in November 1942. So the Guadalcanal campaign is still just tearing along. You know, this is the high point, if you will. Um, the field became operational the following month in December 1942. Um, for the Japanese, unfortunately, the the field became operational really after the campaign had already been decided. But nevertheless, it was operational and the Japanese did launch attacks on Guadalcanal from Munda Field. Back to the point. The Allies were completely unaware of the construction of the airfield at Munda due to the strict security measures that were undertaken by the Japanese in that process. Um, work, of work of constructing the airfield was done before the area was cleared for fear of American aircraft operating out of Guadalcanal discovering the construction zone. So what they would do, and this is kind of, well, it's not kind of, it, it's, it is unprecedented really to my knowledge i don't know about you bill but to my knowledge for sure mm. that the Jap japanese are clearing the airfield without actually clearing the trees they're starting construction right. in the area you know basically building an airfield under the tree canopy so the airfield yeah. can't be detected by aircraft yeah and and they were so cognizant of the fact that it would be that this airfield would be in the range of guadalcanal and they wanted they wanted it to be in the range of Guadalcanal, but not from American aircraft, from Japanese aircraft, um, that they took these extraordinary security measures to conceal the construction of this place. All of that construction security was blown almost immediately by one guy and his two Coast Watchers. And Bill, we've talked about Coast Watchers here and there before mm -hmm. um, in, in, the, in the appropriate places like, you know, Martin Clemens and Guadalcanal and, and, play, and New Guinea right. and, and guys watching for aircraft. But this dude here, gentleman by the name of Donald Kennedy. Bill, who yeah, was Donald, Donald Kennedy? Donald, he was a Kiwi. Most of the Coast Watchers we talked about were Aussies. But here's a guy from New Zealand um doing just superb work who's got great strategic insight he's basically a ghost as far as the japanese go he established a really well-coordinated group of native leaders missionaries and castaway government officials that kept them regularly informed on japanese ship movements troop movements and aircraft flights he he really um forwarded the information to the appropriate channels via radio. And the really remarkable thing about this is the Japanese knew he was there. They, he knew, they knew that he had moved in July 42 from Santa Isabel Island, which is the island to the north that I showed you about, showed you on the map just a moment ago, to New Georgia. And he set up an observation point in the town of Segi. Now, let me go back to the map here because I'm going to show you kind of why he would want to do that. Segi is down here. Now, again, I hope you can see my mouse. It's mm -hmm. in this narrow choke, choke point between these two branches of New Georgia Island. And the great thing about Segi is it was high, but you could see north into the slot, and you could see south into any Japanese aircraft or truth movements south of New Georgia. Now, what's that's the great advantage of Segi. The disadvantage of Segi was that it was a tiny piece of land and it's really hard to hide out in that tiny piece of land. 
And so it was high risk. This guy had, you know, cojones, you know, the size of New Georgia, because he knew the Japanese knew that he was there and they were constantly on the lookout for him, Seth. Yeah, I mean, and you talk about his uh, stones, shall we say. He, a lot of Coast Watchers, you know, they would duck and dodge and they would try to, as you said, become ghosts. And, and basically, you know, the Japanese knew they were there. They, in, in some cases, they knew where they were. They just couldn't get to some of these people. But the Coast Watchers, by and large, would avoid contact with the enemy. Duh, because it's generally one guy and maybe a handful of natives, and that's it. And the Japanese would send out patrols, they'd send out dogs, all kinds of stuff to go find these guys. Not Kennedy. Kennedy was like, oh, well, I'm here. Not only am I a coast watcher, I'm a warrior. He would consistently attack Japanese. He would attack the Japanese with his natives. And, I mean, this guy had balls of solid rock. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, this dude Both did not up. care. Yeah, he he right. he would he would totally go in there and just wreak havoc whenever. Well, not just him. Let me be clear. It was he. It was he and his native uh, compatriots and a, a couple of uh, of uh, Brits, I believe they were, or not Brits, Aussies yeah. uh, that were with him too. And they would go in there and just wreak havoc on the Japanese, uh, you know, encampments and destroy supplies and all kinds of I mean this guy was a bad dude. Yeah, he's a movie. This guy ought to be a movie. Just to, yeah. you know, there there's so much about this story that's so remarkable that he had the presence of mind to move relocate from Santa Isabel to New Georgia because he knew the activity would be greater. It would have been safer in Santa Isabel and he could sure. have watched the the slot from there. But he realized, you know, this not going to he's not going to be able to move the needle from Santa Isabel. All he could do is report he could actually move the needle. So he had people up up near Munda to could, could report on the operations in the airfield construction around Munda. He, he, he moved through the island in a remarkably um, fluid fashion. He could yeah. get. Pretty, pretty much anywhere. The Japanese constantly sent out patrols for him, and he would evade the patrols. Just amazing guy, this Kennedy. Yeah, and, and I mean, the Japanese knew who he was. Like, they weren't just looking for some white guy. They knew it was Donald Kennedy. They they knew exactly who it was that they were looking yeah. for, and they never could lay their hands on him. And you talked about moving fluidly through the jungle. This is something we're going to talk about when the American Army and the Marines get here to New Georgia. They do not move fluidly through the jungle. It, again, admittedly, Kennedy's, it's, it's him and maybe a handful. And by a handful, I'm talking maybe a half a dozen or just a, a shade more natives moving through the jungle. So they're going to, they're traveling light, but still, I mean, this, this cat knew all the ins and outs, knew where everything was, knew how to get to it and was just a beast on this island. Um, he had two subordinates, Sergeant Harry Wickham and Lieutenant Dick Horton. These are, these are the Aussies I was talking about. Uh, they were operating specifically. As, as you said, Bill, in the Monday area, within one week of the beginning of the secret construction of the airfield on Monday, Harry Wickham had it spotted. Um, he relayed the information to Kennedy, who then sent it to Guadalcanal, setting the Allied movements that are going that we're going to talk about here in motion. Uh, within a week of Wickham seeing this airfield, reporting it to Kennedy, who then reported it to Guadalcanal, American aircraft were flying over the area, taking aerial reconnaissance photographs of the 
Monday construction field. I mean, Monday airfield under construction. Um, so as soon as this airfield sprouts up, it becomes apparent to all involved on Guadalcanal that this airfield needs to go. It either needs to go and as in terms of destruction or it needs to be captured. Now, after the Guadalcanal campaign wraps up in February 43, it doesn't necessarily need to be destroyed. They want it, they being the allies, want it captured now because it it it's a perfect springboard for aerial attacks into Bougainville, which is going to be the next jumping point after uh, the allies take New Georgia and, and then further extends the American air power range in and around Rabaul. Um, Photo recon did its work. It was determined by the interpretation unit on Guadalcanal that the field on Munda was no ordinary field. And this is also important. It was thought that the field and its surrounding areas was suitable for round-the-clock operations by supply craft and that the land near the field had been cleared for suitable use as dispersal areas for large amounts of Japanese troops. This is all discerned from aerial photographs. <clears throat> The field gradually took the look of an all-weather field, as I said, a rarity in the area. And that, that's because over. the surface of the runway was made out of crushed coral rather than dirt, which turns into mud during the monsoon season or the rainy season. So that was a big, big deal. But again, if you want to, let's if we can go to the map for a second here. Yep. Here's New Georgia. Here's Munda. And remember, the Solomon's Island campaign was kind of underway, it still wasn't resolved. Although, as, as you said, Seth, it, the outcome was already determined by December-ish of oh, yeah. 42. The, yeah. the, fl the flight missions were being flown out of a ball up here in New Britain. So you've got airplanes flying from a ball trying to attack Americans down here in Guadalcanal. If that Munda field opens up, it's a third of the tactical radius that the Japanese are having to fly out of a ball. So that's a big deal, and the Allies know that it's a big deal. And of course, we also, if we're going to go towards Bougainville up here, remember this was a thousand-mile round-trip flight for those Army mm -hmm. Air Forces aircraft out of Henderson Field, the 600 up, 400 back for that mission to kill Yamamoto. Right. So again, this Munda here is the center of gravity for all tactical operations in this vicinity. So it's a big, big deal, and having it an all-weather field made out of crushed coral is a game changer. Absolutely. And, you know, the ultimate goal, of course, is to, for, for the Allies, is to isolate. And, it, well, at one time it was to capture the, the, the Rabal, but it eventually becomes to isolate that area. And the capture of Munda and New Georgia specifically uh, became, becomes, immediately becomes primary, you know, goal number one in this further stepping stone operation to eliminate Rabal. Um, the field itself was 3,200 feet of crushed coral, as Bill had said. Um, it was an excellent fighter strip. It, it was also used as a, as a way, as a stopover for aircraft coming in and going out. Oh, the Guadalcanal area was also used for damaged aircraft that came in and things like that. Um, aerial recon had also showed that an additional 1,500 foot extension was being built on this thing so this is a big airfield this is not just some you know dirt hole in the ground this is this is a big airfield and this is going to be something that if not captured could prove to be a significant thorn in the side of operations out of guadalcanal and operations anywhere around that general vicinity 
As soon as the oper- as the airfield becomes operational, Coast Watchers Horton and Wickham began directing U.S. Navy dive bombers and attack aircraft uh, to the newly distributed Japanese munitions that were basically dotted around the airfield. Um, even though Navy and Marine aircraft routinely bombed Munda Field, the Japanese routinely repaired the coral field and had it operational within a day or so. So it's kind of like, you know, the Japanese version of Henderson Field. Japanese come in right. and shell Henderson We'd fill in the holes and it would be operation in a couple of hours. Same thing here at Monday. The Japanese are doing the exact same thing. Um, it became painfully clear that the only way to neutralize the place was to get it in our hands. Mm-hmm. So the Japanese are fully aware <laughs> that after the capture of Guadalcanal by the Americans, uh, that their most logical next step would be in the direction of New Georgia and eventually Bougainville with goals on taking Rabaul. Uh, to that end, the Japanese began preparing defenses around against Allied landings on New Georgia and some of the islands that surrounded it on what you mentioned before, Santa Isabella and Kolombangara, especially Kolombangara. Kolombangara was a, a very, very strong location for the Japanese. Um, by June of 43, uh, the Japanese had just under 11,000 men in defensive positions sitting and waiting on the ad- expected Allied invasion. So, I mean, they knew we were coming. They didn't, you know, have any intel as to when. They just knew this more than likely as we're moving up Solomon's, this is going to be the next step in the ladder. Um, the American invasion of an occupation of the Russell Islands, which is not too far from New Georgia, uh, further pointed to an invasion against New Georgia in the very near future. And, you know, the interesting thing here, Seth, is every time we mentioned Rabal, in 1975, when I was at a plebe at the academy and I had Professor E.B. Potter as my history of sea power professor, he had to sit through these um, movies, the old reel-to-reel movies of the day, mm-hmm. uh, from the 1950s. So they were really old, even in 1975, called Victory at Sea. Oh, yeah. And the episode sticks most in my mind is the one titled Rings Around Rabal. That's the title's, title of the episode and talked about. We, we were, you know, MacArthur famously declared he could take Rabal, but as it became more clear that that was going to require um, massing of forces that we didn't have in the area, we would, you know, we decided to isolate Rabal rather than take it directly and it integrated into the island hopping campaign. But again, New Georgia was one of those things, then New, then um, Bougainville was one of those islands where we were making it look like we were gonna attack Rabaul, advance on Rabaul, so that that would consume a lot of Japanese resources to defend Rabaul. But then actually we would move around Rabaul and isolate it and let it fall by other means. But uh, it's an incredible thing moving up the chain into Georgia was one of those first steps. Yep. So the American plan for the invasion, it's rather complex, really, and it's um, kind of goes against what we do later. I think we learn a lesson here as to what not to do, frankly. But when you look at the plan and when you when, when I'm going to lay it out here for you in a second, you'll understand what's like, yeah, that kind of makes sense, but you'll see why eventually it probably doesn't. Um, so... We had planned to land in multiple phases at multiple points. Uh, the Americans would land forces at four points and drive inland with the ultimate destination being, of course, Monday Airfield. Uh, on June 30th, American forces would land at Wickham Anchorage on 
Vangunu Island, which, I mean, some of these names, no, I'm just going to tell you, I'm going to butcher no, them. I'm just going to be honest. No, that's fine. But I got the map up here too, Seth, so you can see that's down here in the lower right corner of Van Vangunu Island, <laughs> right down yeah. here. Yeah. Wickham. It, it was thought that Van Gunu and Wickham Anchorage would be a suitable naval base, and actually turned out that it wasn't. But regardless of this, they thought that it would be, uh, as well as Seggy Point, which Bill had talked about. This is where uh, Donald Kennedy was uh, on New Georgia, which would be a spot for a future airfield. Um, additional forces would land on June 30th at Viru Harbor on New Georgia, where the Japanese had a barge base, and again on Rendova, uh, at Rendova Harbor, Harbor on Rendova Island. Um, as I said, you know, the listener will recall that that uh, Donald Kennedy, the, the Coast Watcher, was at Seggy Point. Uh, at this point, the Japanese were getting too close to him. You know, I, I, we said before that he was a ghost, but the Japanese knew who he was and knew he was there. Uh, for the most part, the, that, you know, they weren't able to get him. But at this time, they were starting to get a little too close for comfort to him and his subordinates. Um, his direct death or capture was pretty much imminent at this point like the japanese knew exactly where he was they were just basically trying to catch him because he was moving around the area um he rated kennedy radios guadalcanal and says hey you know things are starting to go south here for me it's not looking very good i'm not long for this world Yeah, yeah he's like i need some help this guy carried so much he had so much stroke this will tell you the importance of this one dude and, and the role that this New Zealander, this this Kiwi played in this operation. He had so much stroke that when he radios this to Guadalcanal, Admiral Richmond Kelly Turner says, all right, we're going to go get this guy. We're going to go help him and save his ass, and we're going to go right now. Uh, Kelly Turner moves the invasion in that area up a full nine days to precipitate going in there and saving and helping and rescuing Kennedy, which is exactly what happens. He sends two companies of the 4th Marine Raider Battalion. This is a Raider Battalion we have not talked about yet. 4th Marine Raider Battalion to capture Seggy and rescue Kennedy, which is a success. Um, further forces under the command of United States Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel Harry Liversedge, and you're going to hear this name several times today, and you're going to hear it several times in a little place called Iwo Jima. Um, Liver's Edge peoples would land on July 5th and capture positions on Inogai or Inogay and Bairoko Harbor. Um, Bairoko on the map there, Bill, it's, it's going to be, you know, right there. You can see in, in relation to where Bairoko and Inogai are to Munda, why they wanted to land in these particular locales and drive southwards. Um, the units pegged for the operation were mostly all green. Uh, the main unit for all of the invasion points and inland advance would be the United States Army's 43rd Infantry Division. Uh, they would be supplemented by two Raider Battalions of Marines, the Veteran 1st Raider Battalion, whom you've heard of, obviously, at Edson's Ridge and other locales on Guadalcanal, and the new untested 4th Raider Battalion, as well as New Zealand, Fiji guerrillas, and a 9th Marine Defense Battalion. So they're sending in a lot of folks here to, to New Georgia, um, but the main offensive unit is a green national guard unit and we're going to hear about these cats um they do a good job but it 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 initially not, not so much right over Bill? time yeah over time they do a good job this new england uh national guard unit 
um, struggles at first. In fact, mm-hmm. we're, we're going to talk about some not so proud moments in their history. Right. But to, to radio uh, ahead to the kind of the denouement, they they perform magnificently um, in final analysis. But Absolutely. early on, not so much. No, no, and it's it's kind of a kind of a you know second verse, same as the first. When you hear about some of the units on New Guinea, you know, if you've heard in some of the, our earlier episodes here on this season, when we talk about you know National Guard units on New Guinea that struggle initially, but eventually do prevail. Same kind of a thing here. Um, Initial Allied landings and advances went almost exactly to plan. So the, it starts off really, really well. Uh, Marines and soldiers advanced against light Japanese resistance, capturing their objectives all within the first several weeks after landing. Um, by July the 2nd, soldiers of the 172nd Infantry Regiment, this is of the 43rd ID, had captured Rendova just to the south here of Munda Point. And along with support from the United States Marine Corps' 9th Defense Battalion, uh, and and Navy Seabees, they set up impl- art, artillery emplacements, long-range artillery emplacements, with which to shell Munda Point. Uh, these are 155s and yeah. 105s. Okay. Yeah, let's jump over the map again, because I want to give some indication of scale. So here we've got, again, the, the Eastern Landing Force went into uh, Segi, as we described, to rescue uh brave Mr. Kennedy. Then we've got the Western landing force that's going into Rendova here. But here's the point. From Rendova to Munda is just about five miles. Now, how long, uh, How? what's the range of that division artillery that we're talking about? Um, it can scale this distance is the point. So they're able to land on Rendova here and then do an artillery attack against Munda landings and and be in support of also the Western Landing Force landing in this area here, east of Munda. Similar, simultaneously, we have the Northern Landing Group going to Rice Anchorage, and they're going to try to bushwhack through the jungle down to Anagi. So that's kind of all that's going on simultaneously. And Kulamagar, which you spoke about here, which is a pretty strong Japanese emplacement, and you see the the, the beach landing area that we'd intended to invade hasn't happened yet. But these ranges, this is not a huge island. These ranges aren't as long as they seem to be when you talk about it. And so when we're talking, we're going to talk in a moment about some of the folks having struggles getting, this is like three to four miles from the landing zone in Rice Anchorage to Nagi Point here, this is not long distances that we're talking about, and yet we're going to struggle mightily getting to some of the places we're, we're trying to get. Right, no doubt, and, and you know this this is kind of a, a, a throwback to New Guinea, um, not to the point of New Guinea, admittedly. Now the terrain in New Guinea. Uh, you know, we talked about it. John Parshall's talked about it a couple of times with us that the terrain in New Guinea was probably the most hostile terrain. And I'm not just talking about crocodiles and malaria, mm-hmm. although that was a huge part of it. Just the physical terrain, Owen Stanley Mountains, the swamps, the mangrove swamps, you know, all kinds of different things were incredibly hostile to anybody who was there. New Georgia is similar, not to that extent, but it's also no cakewalk. You know, Guadalcanal is like walking through the park compared to 
the terrain on New Georgia, frankly. It's significantly more treacherous, more dangerous. Uh, the jungle is ridiculously thick here. On July, I don't know if we got Garther driving, beating on them, though, like they did in New Guinea, where he's trying to advance the accelerate the the pace of offensive operations in areas that he did not understand. Right. So I don't he might have interfered here in New Georgia, but I'm not I don't know of any episodes where he's radioing the tactical commanders saying you're not going fast enough like he did in New Guinea. Right. 100 percent right. And it's something that uh, we should have mentioned in the beginning of this episode that uh, we just skipped over it apparently. But but it was at this stage of the campaign, uh, MacArthur and Halsey are working, you know, like this, which is <laughs> admittedly, you know, an unlikely pairing, but it works. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, MacArthur is fully aware that Halsey is completely competent, that Halsey knows exactly what the hell he's doing. He's proven it multiple times that Halsey is at this stage in the war. He is the man. He knows what's doing. He knows what to do and how to do it. So MacArthur's basically for New Georgia is essentially hands off. He gives uh, uh, Halsey the people that he needs, i.e. 43rd Infantry Division, and then just lets Halsey say, hey, you know what? Bill, you go take care of this and let me know when it's done, which, Bill, as you know, and as our astute listeners, viewers will know, Mac doesn't do that very often. No, no, but it helps in this regard. Significantly, unlike New Guinea, where he is riding the backs of everybody on there because he, frankly, just wants to make headlines. He's letting Bill Halsey do his thing because I, in my opinion, I think he also realized that Bill Halsey wasn't going to take his crap and didn't have to, yeah. by the way, either. And and was going to, you know, he's just going to let Bill do his thing and just let me know when it's done. Um, on July the 5th, Marines of the 1st Raider Battalion and soldiers of the 148th Infantry Regiment under Liversedge uh, lands at Rice Anchorage. Um this is on the other side of the island in Kula Gulf area, which you will hear about as well in a future episode of the Battle of Kula Gulf, on the northern edge of New Georgia, bound for Inagai, uh, and eventually by Roko Harbor. That's that's the two targets for this uh, combat team, for you know, lack of a better term, to uh, that this is where they're trying to go. They're trying to go to Inagai. They're trying to go to by Roko Harbor and capture both of these locations. Um, by capturing these strategic areas, the Marines would be able to lend vital northern and eastern flanking support for the final push on Munda. And again, the whole goal is Munda Airfield. We're trying to get this airfield. We're sending a lot of lives and treasure into this area to just capture this one specific spot. The mixed American force pushes through the jungle rather quickly, which is rather, you know, it's surprising, but it's also not when you consider that some of the troops that are there. And there's American Army infantry units, National Guard units that are admittedly having some significant difficulties getting through the terrain. However, the Marine Raiders are just plowing through it because that's the kind of fight that these guys specifically were trained for. Uh, the National Guardsmen were not trained for this kind of action. They they, they just, they weren't. Um, but the Raiders were. So no surprise that the Raiders are actually beaten feet. They're getting through the jungle pretty quickly and they're moving pretty rapidly. Um, they're moving fast enough to where after they land, they're looking at Enogai that night with 
plans to attack and capture Inogai the following morning. Uh, in a series of sharp engagements over the next several days, it, it does take them a little while to actually push through and capture the area. Raiders and, sol and soldiers advance through the jungle towards Inogai. Faced with mounting numbers of dead and wounded, as well as a critical supply shortage, and I'm going to get to this in a second, Lever's Edge decided that the final attack on Inagai would commence and succeed, regardless of losses, on July the 10th. So when the raiders and the soldiers landed at Rice Anchorage, they landed with a limited amount of supplies, which was stupid. I understand that they couldn't just shovel, you know, tons and tons and tons and tons of supplies into this area because it was never intended to be that. However... They only had about four days max worth of food, ammunition, and medical supplies. That is a serious gamble on the, you know, A, defensive positions around Inagai and Bairoko, and B, the performance of these units. Not to say that they weren't able to, because we'll see that most of them eventually do perform to the level of expectation. But without a lot of supplies... You're putting your men at risk. It was thought that the Marines and the soldiers would go in there, knock these places out, turn around and hold them, and then the Navy would supply them either through Enagai or eventually, specifically, by Roko Harbor. The following morning, so this is going to be July the 11th, uh, three companies of raiders attacked Enagai without artillery support. And this goes back to what I just said about the lack of supplies. Not only was it food and medical supplies, they didn't have any arty. And, and I mean... None. They didn't have 75s, no 105s, no 145s, nothing. No air support. Yeah. Nothing. Maybe, nothing. Again, <clears throat> this is the place they're trying to get right here. Uh, I got to switch back. Sorry. Um, and so you could see that through the jungle, they're, you know, without any artillery, without any air support, they're just, all they have is mortars. They're just running into well established defenses. Yep. By mid-afternoon on the 11th of July, uh, Inagai had been captured, and the Marines evacuated their wounded via PBY. So this is this is again. If you look at the map, you'll see where 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 Rice Anchorage was, where they is, where they landed, and then where they had to march through. You see the landing right there, and then they marched down to Inagai right there. It was too far to drag their wounded through back through the jungle to Rice Anchorage, so they had to evacuate them via PBY. So that's it's kind of a crappy situation frankly yeah, uh, as, as to how these things were conducted here and with this specific uh offensive is is what it is and and it's uh it's it's there was a lot of plans put into this operation but this probably wasn't the most well sought after uh you know or well thought after uh operation here and the reason for that is mainly because of that island immediately over there Kolombangara Kolombangara was such a strong Japanese location that it was thought that the Japanese would shuttle people from Kolombangara into Bairoko you know because the distance is not far and they're going to continually reinforce yeah, it's close. And it's one, it's very close. One of the other things about these PBY uh, evac is medevac is that these little lines that are offshore here, those are basically barrier atolls. These are um, shallow reef areas that are above the waterline. So there is a whole bunch of ways to, to for that PBY to, to to actually get into trouble here trying to land in this little bit of water. The problem is if you land that airplane out here, then you got to get over that reef to evacuate with, with a boat or something like that. And if you land, that's only a few hundred yards here of width. So if you land a PBY in here, 
it's it's susceptible to shelling from both Kalamagara and from Enogai. And so this is a really, really tricky situation and not the way you want to do these things, these operations. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, it was poorly, poorly planned, really, frankly. Um, they they get their people, most of their wounded people out via PBY. They do accumulate some fresh supplies, but there's only so many fresh supplies that can be brought in via PBY, let's be real. Um, they were planning for the attack on Bairoko Harbor to occur on July 20th. So this is going to be eight days after uh, the capture and the resupply at Enagai. Uh, on July the 20th, the first Raider uh, regiment so, so I, I, again, I failed to mention in the beginning, it was a fr- it was two Raider battalions formed the 1st Marine Raider Regiment. It's the 1st Raider Battalion and a 4th Raider Battalion formed this 1st Marine Raider Regiment. Um, the two of these units, the 4th and the 1st, attacked by Roko Harbor. Uh, the goal of this attack was twofold, as I said earlier. Eliminating the Japanese threat to the fighting around Munda would secure the northern flank and the capture of by Roko Harbor would give the Americans a place from which to supply another flank against Munda. So you know, even though even though it's going to be under the threat of Kolomangara right there, it's still Bairoko Harbor was tucked in enough that it was thought that even if we capture the sucker, we can filter supplies in there and further push down on Munda and get this thing done and eliminate this whole threat. Again, no heavy artillery support would be provided for this attack as the Raiders and the accompanying soldiers of the 145th and 148th Infantry Regiment were expected to move quickly and eliminate the Japanese with haste. Liver's Edge said, let's get this done, and let's get this done now. Initial Marine recon patrols had detected heavy and strong Japanese defensive positions that had clearly been reinforced since the capture of Inagai. So in this you know, weak, odd time, the Japanese had very clearly sent more people to Bairoko, completely aware that the Marines' next – that well, that this mixed force next target was going to be the capture of this very harbor. Um, without artillery support, the Marines should have at very least have had air support, but they didn't have that. And there's really no reason for that. Bill, I when I was looking through all this and prepping for this episode, I could not find any reason why they were not supplied with any kind of air support. Liver's Edge requested significant amounts of air support multiple times and never received so much as a flyover. By a damn dauntless. I mean, I mean, nothing. Got absolutely nothing. I think if John Parshall were here, he would say that we had not established close air support doctrine very well in those, these days, that we weren't real good at it. Um, and that may be true, but what we didn't, we're not talking about trying to support, you know, troops in contact at danger close range here. We're trying to talk about you know, destroying resupply lines. Right. Um, you know, to, to to taking the focus of the enemy off of the troops that are directly in front of them and give them something else to worry about. And, right. and so there's a lot that could have been done out of Henderson Field during this campaign. And, and I don't know why we didn't um, make more use of aircraft that were readily available. Exactly. It's not like we didn't have the birds to do it because we did. And And I mean, you know, to your point, I mean, just suppression of Japanese fire. You know, because, I mean, these these Japanese were tucked in the bunkers that the Marines could see. And they did have artillery, unlike us. Yes, 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 they did. So, and they put yeah. it to use, too. So not surprisingly, the American attacks stalled quickly along the strong Japanese front here at Bairoko Harbor. The only 
artillery support the Marines had was their own 60 millimeter mortars. There were a couple of 81s, let's be clear, but still that's nothing, you know, compared to a 105 or a 155 throwing lead at a target. Um, the Marines and soldiers, not surprisingly, could not push the Japanese from their heavy defensive positions. Um, pushing on Bairoko from the south, the Army's 148th Infantry Regiment got bogged down in the terrain that included thick, almost impenetrable jungle, as well as deep swamps that were covered heavily by Japanese machine gun positions. The Japanese knew where we were coming from. They knew what the hell was going to happen. And, you know, it, they were like, no, this this is not going to happen. This is not going to happen here. They had their um, interlocking fields of fire, and they were they were ready as they oh, yeah. pushed north. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, as the soldiers pushed through the swamps, they came under withering Japanese machine gun fire and essentially were caught in a trap because the swamp did not allow them to extricate themselves very rapidly. There, And I do mean in the swamp. I'm talking like waist deep, shoulder deep at some points, trying to navigate their way through this swamp. So you know, you're not getting out of this you know, machine gun trap very, very quickly. No surprise here. Again, heavy casualties are sustained by the by the soldiers here in this attack, and it fails completely, absolutely fails. Um, the Raiders really fared no better, uh, with the 4th Raider Battalion suffering about 90 casualties and the 1st Raider suffering close to 200 casualties just in this one specific attack. So the initial Marine and Soul and Army attack on Bairoko Harbor is just a miserable failure. Um, realizing that without any type of heavy support, which the Marines and soldiers did not have, again, his men would go nowhere, and they were already suffering heavy casualties. Liver's Edge called off the attack and withdrew back to Enagai. So, I mean, this is a flat-out, straight-up defeat. Uh, the Japanese just slapped uh, the combined Marine and soldier for an army force here and just, boom, they ran into a brick wall. Bairoko is eventually captured, but it's captured after Monday is captured. Bairoko is captured at the end of August almost. So, I mean, this is this is a full, you know, several, several weeks after the initial Marine assault. Um Liver's Edge's people are exhausted. They are they are physically exhausted. They are physically spent. Their supplies, as I said before, are significantly lower than they were already before, and they virtually had nothing to begin with. Um, only thing he could really do at that point is hold up an in a guy and hope for mm -hmm. continued supply runs, which he does get, admittedly. Uh, all he does after that is mount probing assaults, uh, you know, patrols around that area. And this area of the assault on of the offensive on New Georgia essentially dies on the vine here. The Marines and the soldiers hold out and they do, you know, they don't they're not they don't wither away. But the assaults from this direction towards Munda, they're gone. They're done after this. It's over with. Um this is a significant failure in the assault on Monday, and it does prove to be significant because of the fact that it, the Japanese are able to hold that area, and there's no more pressure put on them from that vicinity from this raider-slash-army force. So it is, it's not just a little pittance. It does play a large part, right, Bill? Yeah, you know, and it's a combination of factors that led to this. You got the Japanese well-entrenched defenses there interlocking fields of fire, but the, the terrain, uh, as with Buna in uh, New Guinea, terrain, diseases, poor leadership, uh, the green troops that didn't understand, you know, they were, were learning as they were getting shot at, learning under fire. And so all these factors kind of played into where we are right now. So 
you know, he was the, the commander was right to call a strategic pause, regroup, and try to figure out what we need to do in order to reattack more effectively. Exactly. So, you know, as we've said all along, the big prize in this campaign is Munda. And and we had been making steady progress through the area, you know, as we talked about the, the landings at Rice Anchorage and the attack on Inagai, which was a success. The Bairoko attack was a failure. Um, as we took Rendova, the United States Army pushed people across the channel over here and landed at a little place called Zanana, almost like banana with a Z, it's Zanana. Um the 43rd Infantry Division uh, with the 172nd IR and the 169th Infantry Regiment started to push through the jungles. Now, this is where their green as grass, uh, you know, combat readiness state comes into play <laughs> bright and clear in, in terms of leadership and performance here. They're running in the thick jungle, yes, but they're running into stubborn, stubborn Japanese defenses. And these National Guardsmen, God bless them, just they're frankly, they're not up to the task as yet. They do learn on the job, as Bill was saying. But right now, they're 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 struggling. They're, they really are. For 16 days, uh, the troops slugged their way through the heavy jungle, fast flowing rivers, gorges and steep ravines from Zanana towards Munda, uh, all the while running into stubborn Japanese defenders that were expertly laid out by Japanese General Minoru Sasaki. He was the cat that was in charge of the defense of this area, and he knew that the uh, that the Americans were going to come through the jungle as such, much like at Buna and Gona and San Ananda on New Guinea. He, he laid out his defensive positions, coconut log bunkers, coral bunkers even in some spots, along basically a defensive horseshoe around Munda Point and just said, come and get me. Um, you know, there's multiple factors that, that that are laying into the reason that these soldiers are struggling going through here, not the least of which are the defenses and the, and the, uh, the terrain. But nevertheless, they are moving slowly up towards Munda, kind of like a Kind of like being stalked by a hurricane. Living on the Gulf Coast, I know full well, <laughs> and so do you, Bill. You know, a hurricane yeah. is like being stalked by a snail. You know, this is kind of the same kind of a thing here. Um, by July the 15th, however, the American advance towards Munda was halted, like straight up stopped. It wasn't going anywhere. The Japanese had retained their main line of defense, and they weren't, the Americans weren't moving anywhere. So, significant cases at this point of combat fatigue start to show their ugly head in the 43rd Infantry Division. Uh, these are, you know, as I said before, these are National Guardsmen who were not trained to come out here and fight in the jungle. You know, again, much like the 32nd ID uh, that were at, at New Guinea. These guys were trained in the United States. They were not trained properly for jungle warfare, and it's showing right here. Um, fire discipline is waning. Uh, men are straight up refusing orders for patrols and attacks, uh, causes of uh, cases, I'm sorry, of direct insubordination against officers within the ranks were becoming more frequent, bordering on epidemic status. This is not good, Bill. No, combat fatigue, what we would call PTS today, um, you know, is very rapidly taking its toll. And, you know, when when folks, when the morale breaks down, and by the way, the Japanese were keenly aware 
that uh, the morale was sagging, that I think they could see folks running away and things like that from the from the lines. And so they knew that they were um, not facing the cream of the crop. These were, you know, not the, the best of the best of American fighting forces, yet they would get better. But, it, but the Japanese knew, okay, we've got the advantage here right now, at least the moral advantage, if not the logistic and, and tactical advantage. We need to take use of it. So taking advantage of the situation, they would routinely attack weary and scared Americans at night with infiltration attacks, engage in hand-to-hand -hand combat. You know, you see in, in the uh, miniseries of the Pacific that you had a part in, in, do, in helping with, Seth, that the scenes where folks in, you know, various battles um, around, you know, the Pacific theater operations, the Japanese would jump into foxholes and stab Americans to death or, or choke them to death, you know, which would, of course, the, the stories of those things, which would actually happen, would spread like wildfire and would cause even more fear. And that causes people to shoot at random targets, you know, shoot at any noise that they hear, including shoot at other Americans, yep. which again, it starts to snowball. All these cascading morale effects which snowball and quickly reduce the combat effectiveness of these already reduced combat effectiveness units. Right, exactly. Uh, you know, Japanese infiltration tactics weren't necessarily employed here to break the American lines. Like they weren't saying, oh, we're going to go push the Americans all the way back to Zanana. That was not their point. Their, their goal here, to Bill's point, was to get in the heads of these soldiers. And that is precisely what they did. Yeah, they were there to kill people, but they were also there to scare the crap out of people, which is exactly what they did. They knew, the Japanese knew, that they had this American unit on the verge of breaking mentally, not even physically, just mentally. Samuel Elliott yeah, Morrison. Good, good. No, I was going to say, they even learned enough of English expressions to learn how to swear in English, the Americans, and they, were, they could even name commanding officers and dared the Americans to fight, taunting them, you know, mm -hmm. saying they were, you're not in Louisiana anymore. And I think what they're talking about there is Fort Polk and other places where, where, mm -hmm. where soldiers were trained before they go. So they even knew where the, the soldiers were training before they would deploy out of yep. the Pacific theater. This is this was really incredible. I can guarantee you there wasn't a single American who knew where the Japanese soldiers had trained, except for maybe China, before they came out here to, to um, you know, New Georgia Island. So this was pretty incredible, uh, yeah. the way they were able to get inside her head. And you were going to say what Samuel Ellison, Samuel Elliott Morrison said about this. Yeah, he says, for the sick and hungry soldiers who had fought all day, and this is Morrison's own words, this unholy chivalry was terrifying. They shot at everything in sight, foxfire on rotting stumps, land crabs clattering over rocks, even their own comrades. So, you know, the Japanese tactics here were only to instill fear and just absolute terror in the American lines, and they succeeded in that one 100 percent. 
realizing that something absolutely had to be done to kick the division into action and restore confidence, General Oscar Griswold seized overall command in the field, relieved the CEO of the 169th Infantry Regiment, as well as several battalion CEOs within the 169th that had allowed itself to be cut off and surrounded by Japanese only a week earlier. I failed to mention this, too. At one point during the assault or during the offensive, the 169th Infantry Regiment got cut off by the Japanese. And not that that's a, you know, an odd thing to happen, but I mean, they allowed themselves to be cut off because of poor communication with their flanks and basically just poor leadership. They tended to outrun the rest of the unit. And that's not to say that they were moving faster than anybody else. It's just that they were not following procedure for their attack plans of the day and they wound up getting themselves cut off. Um, Griswold immediately realizes that these 43rd ID guys, God bless them, alone are not going to get this job done. He immediately requests reinforcements and receives the 161st, 161st Infantry Regiment from the 25th Infantry Division. We've talked about these cats. These guys were on Guadalcanal, as well as tanks, United States Marine Corps tanks, setting the stage for the assault on Munda Point itself. He wasted... No time. As soon as these guys from 25th get there and these Marine Stewart tanks get there, he immediately, Griswold that is, immediately launches an attack, an all-out offensive all along the front. Whether these guys are in mental or you know emotional readiness or not, he doesn't care. He realizes that he's completely attuned to the situation. He realizes that, honestly, at this point, the front line is starting to slip in terms of you know, effectiveness. So with these new people under his command now, the 25th guys I'm talking about specifically, combat veterans, he's like, all right, let's go. Let's move. Let's get this done and let's get it done right now. Um, on July the 23rd, the 43rd Infantry Division was reinforced with, I said, with more men from the 25th as well as the 37th Infantry Division. So he's bringing even more people over here. Griswold at this time had about 30,000 men under his Control And this is a hugely important thing. So this all goes back to how the American allied forces in this region had evolved since Guadalcanal. Think about this just for a second. Before this reinforcement, the American assault on New Guinea was in dire peril of being defeated. I mean, straight up being defeated, lost right here. The Marines had been Mm -hmm. stymied by Rocco. The army had worn itself out in the advance towards Munda and had suffered from poor leadership. Had the United States situation been tenuous in terms of supply and reinforcements like the Japanese were, the situation would have ended very badly. It would have ended in defeat. Instead, complete command of the air and the seas in daytime, admittedly, uh, allowed the Americans to rebuild strength rapidly and launch a massive attack. This never could have been done and never and wasn't done. On Guadalcanal. So, I mean, you're talking about a matter of a couple of weeks here from when Griswold takes over and basically all he's got is a you know handful of Marines and the what's left of the 43rd Infantry Division that is literally breaking. In a couple of weeks, he's got 30,000 guys on there. That That is the supply yeah. situation. You know, I mean, it's significant. Yeah, we we had evolved mightily in the time since, you know, August of 1942 when we started engaging seriously at Guadalcanal. So this was a big deal. Remember remember the point in Guadalcanal when the Japanese only thought we had 2,000 folks on the island and we had 10, and then there was a point where we had 20. Now, this is just a couple of weeks into New Georgia, 
And we've got 30,000 Army and Marines uh, ready to engage. Huge, massive logistic difference between, um, you know, when we started serious ground operations in the Pacific. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 incredible to think about it, really. You know, I mean, the Japanese wish they could have done this kind of thing. You know, they, they, they dreamed of things like this happening to them where they could just snap their fingers and have 30,000 guys under their command in a matter of a couple of weeks. That's what they wanted to do on Guadalcanal that, of course, never, you know, never did come to fruition in the, in, in the terms of, bam, all of a sudden there's a lot of guys here. But such was the command of the seas and the air at this time in the war that all Griswold has to do is basically say, hey, you know what? Why don't y'all send me some more people over here and poof, uh, you know, in the blink of an eye, mm -hmm. there's all these guys here and, and their supplies. Further reinforcing our point that we made repeatedly that Midway isn't the inflection point of the Pacific War, Guadalcanal is. Mm -hmm. And Guadalcanal is the point where we're able to do these things that we were not able to do before. Yep, absolutely. So Griswold now has all these people under his control, under his under his purview, if you will. He's expected to succeed and get it done pretty quick. On July the 25th, uh, the Americans are running, the E launches his attack, obviously. The Americans run in to prepare Japanese positions. This time, however, the GIs are aided by heavy naval gunfire support as well as divisional artillery support. Yet despite the artillery support, the American attack stalls it doesn't necessarily fail per se but it does stall because it runs into these strong strong japanese defensive positions in and around munda this horseshoe around munda that just seemingly cannot be broken interlocking fields of fire from the coconut log and coral bunkers or pillboxes whatever you want to call them reduce the battlefield almost at this stage to a world war one style fight it was a siege if you know for for better terminology no man's land yeah exactly and remember these the japanese are learning from these battles too remember these coconut log and, and pillboxes when we talk about tarawa mm -hmm. later oh, yeah. in this uh, season oh yeah big time big time realizing that the only real way to clear the land was with men because the artillery support helpful as it is it's not reducing these bunkers and that's the key it's it's suppressing the japanese until the soldiers get close up to the bunkers and then the bunkers come alive and, and they're laying waste to these guys uh the army deploys flamethrowers to the arena they they bring flamethrowers to the party this is the one of the first times that american forces utilize this i don't want to call it a new weapon because they were using world war one but new to us uh in, in the pacific theater uh, the weapons proved absolutely devastating, and this is something that you're going to see for the remainder of the Pacific War, or the deployment of flamethrowers against fixed Japanese positions. Um, the Japanese who were in these positions were either immediately, you know, burnt to death, you know, literally. I mean, the, mm -hmm. the 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 flames would stick to them and they would burn. Or the the heat was such that it literally sucked all the oxygen out of the bunkers and didn't necessarily touch the people. Exactly. Yeah, it yeah. would choke them within seconds. It just sucked the oxygen right out of their lungs. However, it's you know it's it's like a continuous nightmare. In a prelude of things to come, the soldiers would knock out a pillbox, advance past it, only for the pillbox to come back alive again. At this point, this is when the soldiers start literally burning every single thing that's in the pillbox, alive or dead. They're throwing satchel charges in here, blowing these things to pieces. 
an order is passed down uh, among the Army Command here on New Georgia that says to bayonet or shoot or both every Japanese body that they see. Quote, stick them or shoot them was the order for sure they were dead. Exactly. Because every time they'd pass, something would happen. These guys would spring up seemingly out of nowhere and they would waylay the, the, you know, the rear echelon coming up to move up towards the front. So everybody that was seen that there was a, you know, a few bullets pumped into them or a bayonet stuck through them. Uh, Grizzly business, but it was necessary to advance past this point. Um, after these tactics are employed, flamethrower, satchel charges, basically just absolute demolition of these Japanese positions. No surprise here. The advance does start to pick up pace. On July 29th, uh, the soldiers are moving rapidly across the swampy jungle, swampy jungle terrain at this point. Uh, Japanese defenders, ever tenacious, held their ground despite rising casualties and disease taking their toll on the Japanese side. Hmm. While we have hit on the 43rd Infantry Division really hard, and frankly, deservingly so, um, regard to their performance, they were indeed dotted with heroes amongst those who may not have performed to their capability. Uh, One such hero, and this guy is a stud, was a a gentleman by the name of Robert Shelton Scott, who was a lieutenant in the 172nd Infantry Regiment. And the days previous this, I'm talking about, you know, late June, early July, the 43rd had advanced to and captured the area directly in front of Munda Airfield. The Japanese, completely aware that the airfield's capture meant their defeat, counterattacked ferociously in the area known as Morrison Hill. In command of a platoon, Scott led a counterattack against Japanese positions in and around Morrison Hill. In the attack, the 30-year-old Washington, D.C. area native outran his men and found himself alone, (laughs) alone, (laughs) several yards ahead of his men on the top of this hill. As Scott realizes his predicament, the Japanese counterattack to retake Morrison Hill. This is, unfortunately, it's not an uncommon thing where an officer or, you know, ranking NCO has a significant Mm -hmm. drive to get things done probably a little bit more so than the men under his command and just goes and and hoping that hoping to Christ that his people are behind him only to get to this position, turn around and go, where the hell are my guys? Yeah. When you're leading from the front, you need eyes in the back of your head in order to make sure everybody else is following and when to slow down or stop, because sometimes there are legitimate reasons why they're not keeping up with you. It's not mere cowardice. It's, you know, something has happened that you're not aware of. And so, you know, he finds himself out there by himself and he takes cover behind a tree stump and starts opening fire with his M1. That's the really the only thing he can do to kind of, you know, because he probably didn't even know where he had lost his platoon. How far back are they? Where are they? Did they, you know, did they do a flank or flanking movement or, you know, what's going on here? So he started shooting and flinging hand grenades um, at the oncoming Japanese, which you know, where's this coming from? If they don't see him behind that tree stump, that's going to surprise them. And they're going to start thinking, well, let's assess the situation before we run into this fire. And so that temporarily halted him. And then he ran back to get more grenades. He finally found where his platoon was. And then he ran back and, um, you know, just got into another position just as another attack 
commenced. One of those attackers shot Scott in the left hand, but he stood his ground shooting his would-be killer and then just fending off the Japanese the best he could. And he stopped the second attack before his infantrymen made their way to the hilltop to, to kind of reinforce and relieve their lonely CEO. He managed to kill 28 of these attackers and quite rightfully received the Medal of Honor for his actions, his solitary attack and solitary defense of Morrison Hill, yeah. killing 12, 28 attackers now. I'm gonna I'm gonna cough here and remind folks what uh, MacArthur did to receive his Medal of Honor. Compare and contrast, students. Yeah, yeah really. This guy is this guy is serious. You know, to, to your point, you know, earlier, Bill, you said there was no cowardice. It wasn't. You know, his his platoon was actually taken under fire. Uh, Scott just when he gave the order to charge, he just kept on trucking. Um, he had no earthly clue because, I mean, everybody's shooting. They're, they're running up a hill. They're, they're trying to attack the hill. There's gunfire all around him. He had no earthly idea. Or anything. Yeah. Hell no. It's, yeah, it's tough. Yeah. When, when he turns around and realizes his people aren't there, he's stuck, you know, out in the wash and he's got to do what he's got to do. So, I mean, this is absolute bravery at its highest point here. You know, solitary attacking, solitary defense until his men do come up to take, you know, to help him out. Uh, this is for all the the lack of performance that the 43rd had displayed so far they were like just like every other unit were dotted with heroes through and through and this guy scott is a perfect example of that um while scott is doing his stuff while he's up there doing his deed just a short distance away there's a slightly built combat medic from Cleveland, Ohio, and he's out there saving lives. This guy's name is Frank Petrarca. He was working as a medic with the 145th Infantry Regiment of the newly arrived 37th Infantry Division. He's pulling wounded men out of the field of fire and evacuating them to the rear as combat medics, you know, are <laughs> want to do. Uh, on July the 27th at a little place called Horseshoe Hill. He pulled three men from intense Japanese machine gun fire. The three men had been cut down by the enemy weapon, and Petrarca risked his life to go grab them when no one else would. These guys are out there. They're you know horribly wounded by this Japanese machine gun. They're crying for help, and nobody's getting up to go help them. Petrarca is like the hell with it. He gets up and he runs out there and he grabs these three guys. And you got to remember, you know, he's going out there three times to go get these people. He's not mm -hmm. you know grabbing three at a time. He's grabbing one guy at a time. So each time he's going out there, he's taking extreme risk to go get these people and drag them or carry them as the case may be off the field of battle back to their own lines behind you know away from japanese fire two days later he pulls another soldier out of a foxhole after this particular man had been partially buried under a japanese uh, mortar barrage the mortars are going off and they bury this guy you know pretty much from what i was able to find basically up to his neck and the foxhole, and he's hurt in 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 this in this uh, barrage. Using his bare hands, he dug this guy out, pulled him out of the foxhole, and brings him back to American lines. And finally, not with an entrenching with his bare hands, this is with his bare friggin' hands under mortar fire, he's digging this guy Maybe he out has of the a hole that he can use. But I don't know. I don't know, man. I, I mean, that's 
you can you can imagine just imagine if you will the fury of him digging this guy out. First of all, the guy's panicking. I mean, he's basically up to here in dirt and wounded and freaking out. And Petrarca is basically well, he's not basically he is digging. If you ever seen a dog dig a hole, he's doing the same kind of thing with his bare friggin' hands, trying to pull this you know 150, 160, 170 pound guy out of this hole and get him back to American lines. Finally. On his birthday, July the 31st, Petrarca again braved intense enemy fire to render aid to a wounded man from his platoon. Having already pulled out several other men in the exposed crossfire in which his platoon was in, Petrarca again ran to retrieve another man. Japanese mortar barrage unfortunately killed him as he ran to this wounded man. He too receives, rightfully so, the Medal of Honor. Frank Petrarca was only 25 years old. So there's on his birthday. birthday. Yeah. And I mean, there's, you know, bravery all over the battlefield here. So while, you know, these units weren't exactly the first Marine division or wouldn't be the seventh infantry division later on, these guys are, are studded with heroes all along the line. And there's one more I want to talk about here. Uh, While Petrarca lay dying on the field near Horseshoe Hill on July 31st, another Ohio native, so the 37th Infantry Division, by the way, duh, comes from around the state of Ohio. There's a reason that all these Buckeyes are in this unit. Bill, you're a Buckeye. Uh, An Ohio native named Roger Young was engaged in close combat with the Japanese as well. Uh, He's born in Tiffin, Ohio, Roger Young was. Uh, And he grew up spending much of his boyhood in the woods shooting things you know hunting and 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 you know just he was a woodsman he, he he liked to be outdoors um developing superior marksmanship skills because of this when he joined the ohio national guard in 1940 he was assigned to train men in the art of small arms um his marksmanship as a soldier was outstanding which is even more extraordinary because of the fact that he was practically blind the guy had he had sustained a significant injury when he was in high school. I can't remember what what he was playing. I don't know if it was basketball or whatever, but he got hit in the head, uh, which wound up sending him to the hospital for a long time. He wound up losing a good bit of his vision and his hearing as well as a result of this injury. Um, so he was he was at a disadvantage visually, you know. Yet his marksmanship was such so outstanding that he was asked to instruct or ordered to instruct other people on how to shoot. So this is extraordinary in its own right. The fact that the guy was practically blind, wore Coke bottle glasses, and was a marksmanship instructor. While on New Georgia, uh, Young was promoted to sergeant, but turned in his stripes. And this is, in my opinion, this just tugs at my friggin' heart right here, man. He turns in his stripes for he feared that his poor eyesight and his lack of hearing, which had gotten worse in the combat in New Georgia, which is no surprise here, um, it would it would hinder his ability to lead his men. So these National Guard units were localized. You know, they they're these guys are from Ohio. So a lot of the guys in his unit, in his platoon, in his squad, whatever the case may be, are boyhood buddies you know these are guys that he's known his whole life and he felt that because of his poor eyesight and his poor hearing that despite the fact that he was a badass and he was a badass he he did not want that albatross hanging around his neck that he might get his hometown buddies killed and that's 
that just it touches me because I mean of the sheer. Yeah, you, mm-hmm. I don't know. It, it's just, well, he understood the responsibility, and he didn't want to have to be the one to go home and live in the same hometown with all these other people, family members of folks that maybe he would have for death. And so it was very, very personal for him. Yeah, very. And, and that's very, very high order there. On July the 31st, July the 31st, regardless of the fact whether or not he turned in his stripes, because of the fact that they needed experienced people to lead patrols, he was assigned to lead a 20-man patrol, much to his chagrin. And he did protest. And he's like, I don't want to do that. I'll be in the patrol, but I don't want to lead the patrol. But he was like, but his commanding officer basically said, I got nobody else. You're taking this patrol, whether you like it or not. He's assigned to lead this 20-man patrol against Japan to recon Japanese positions before a major assault. After performing his mission, Young's group was ambushed by the Japanese upon returning to American lines. Um, a Japanese machine gun some 75 yards away pinned the men down. Two men were killed outright, and Young was wounded in the opening fury of Japanese fire. After trying to outflank the weapon, the patrol was ordered – and failing, by the way – the patrol was ordered to withdraw. Ignoring the order so as to provide fire so his men could get out, Young crawled towards the weapon in order to draw fire. And while he's doing this, he's hit. What Young, he's already been hit once. He's hit again. But he still crawls towards the Japanese machine gun. As he got closer, he opens fire with his M1, throws grenades, eventually killing the occupants and destroying the weapon. Soon after, he was hit again by enemy fire, and this time he's killed. This also is a 25-year-old who is also awarded the Medal of Honor. Uh, he's a bit of a folk hero, and and rightfully so, in his native part of Ohio. There's several streets named after him. There's a couple of town squares named after him. He is a, a legend in the Buckeye State. <sighs> you know, Bill, you never get tired of hearing stories like this. I mean, these guys, you know, they're not the only ones. Let's be clear. There's a lot of actions that probably mm-hmm. warranted the Medal of Honor that never got recognized. But when you hear stories like this, it it inspires you. You know, it, it, there's something about it. You cannot help but just listen to these or talk about these, as the case may be, and just go, damn. You know, I mean, this is this is serious stuff. This guy sacrificed his life knowing full well he's probably not getting out of the situation sacrificed his life to make sure his hometown pals could get out of here and return to the lines. And there's, you know. Yeah, they're not doing it for the medal, particularly when they know they're not going to live to receive it. You know, just one of those things where, like you said, the number of people that do things like this, but nobody didn't have the right witnesses to, to report on what they did to never receive the medal substantially outnumbers the number of people whose heroic acts were witnessed so they could get the medal. So there was, there were many, many youngs this day and yeah. um, the National Guard or active soldiers didn't matter. They, they, they were heroes on all sides. Absolutely. No doubt. By August the 5th, Monday Airfield finally is firmly in U.S. hands. Uh, what remained of the Japanese defenders were evacuated and redeployed to Kolombangara. Uh, the fighting was over by the end of the first week of August, as I said, and had cost the Americans heavily. In the fighting around Munda alone, 
the United States suffered almost 5,000 casualties, 4,994 to be exact, versus the 4,683 killed in an unknown number wounded by the Japanese in the same area. And these are just bodies that we're counting that we could find. So the number is actually of Japanese is probably higher than that. But this is the 4,683 is what we were able to accumulate, I guess you could say. Um, the campaign had initially been a show of American blunders, frankly, you know, from the Bairoko Harbor assault to the lack of supplies for Liver's Edge's people to the initial performance of the National Guard units in the 43rd ID. You know, it was just, it wasn't a good show. It wasn't a good start to the Solomon Islands island hopping campaign. But, Bill, to your point that you initially made at the beginning, these guys who went into the field green as grass come out of the other end of Munda Airfield, a toughened bloodied, experienced combat unit that will see a lot more combat as the Pacific War goes on and prove themselves prove themselves over and over and over again and become one of the more exemplary units in the United States Army as it pushes through the Pacific. So, you know, it's it's the National Guard is rightfully criticized for their performance at the beginning of a lot of these campaigns, but just like Buna. You know, they come out of it and they they do come out of it a better and stronger and significantly more prepared combat ready unit almost every single time. So and the capture of Muta okay. makes a difference in the conduct of this war going forward. Yep. We flew a lot of very important missions out of Munda. I mean, there's a Marine Squadron, historic, very famous VMF 214, under the leadership of a hard drinking devil may care old man from Sword Lane, Idaho, named Greg Pappy Boyington. Remember the Black Sheep Squadron? That's them. They're gonna they're gonna fly a bunch of missions out of um uh, Munda. So the casualty rate was significant. One casualty is too many, but capturing this and and building and leveraging this airfield and all of the other Places around New Georgia that the CVs primarily built into working bases is going to make a huge impact on the conduct of the war going forward. Absolutely, you know, it was it was considered that that Munda, the capture of Munda Field, was a major reason that the campaign for Bougainville, as bloody as it was, was a success because there was consistent air support coming from Munda um, to support those units over there in Bougainville. There was consistent uh, air, aircraft coming from Munda that attacked uh, Rabal. And, you know, as you said, Greg Boeington, I mean, you know, the, the Black Sheep, I mean, this was their first home, first major home in the Pacific. So, I mean, you know, Munda is a very, becomes a very, very important place for the Allied advance. And it's, it, it, it never really kind of slackens because the fighting in this area doesn't really die down for a while, you know, I mean, Monday is an important area for a very, very long time. And and over 100 Allied aircraft of various kinds operated from Munda Field. And just that period from its capture at the end of August until the beginning in the middle and the end of November of the same year of 1943. So, I mean, that's a lot of birds flying from this newly captured Japanese strip. So this the sacrifices made by the soldiers, the National Guardsmen and the Marines was certainly not in vain. That's right. So, you know, it's it's a campaign that is not widely known. It's a campaign that's not widely talked about. But New Georgia, Munda specifically, 
was very important. And, and you know, much like you're going to see on all these little islands that we talk about, be it New Georgia, Bougainville, well, Bougainville wasn't a little one, but Tarawa, places like that, you know, there are there, there are stepping stones in the road to Japan. So while we talk about Tarawa and, you know, Bougainville and places like that and, and, you know, larger, more popular operations, it's important to remember these smaller operations that nevertheless played a very, very important role as the war continues to go through. What do you uh, what do you think, Bill? What do you what do you have to yeah. You know, it's hard to think of it as a small operation when you have 30,000 Americans in support of it, right? Maybe that shows the degree to which there's an old Sun Tzu, you know, the Chinese military philosopher Sun Tzu said, in order to to achieve victory in warfare, you need to outnumber, if you're in the offensive, you need to outnumber the defense five to one. And, you know, Sun Tzu wasn't wrong. I mean, even two, two millennia after he said many of the things that he said. We 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 relearned the lessons of Sun Tzu over and over again. Um, so that's just a, another thing that comes to mind as we talk about this. Yeah, yeah, and and you're going to see that that that's a that's going to be a, a a thing that we do consistently as the Pacific War you know continues to wind up in fervor is that you know we consistently throw. More and more and more and more and more men and places like New Georgia, we realized after New Georgia, I should say, we realized that we needed an overwhelming offensive force to take even the smallest Japanese force because these people would fight like cornered lions. You know, they were not just going to throw up their hands and say, hey, you know what, this this situation is bad. We're not going to get out of it. So we quit. No, quite the opposite. They're going to hold on and they're going to fight till the bitter end. And we needed people, we needed materiel, we needed vicious tactics and 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 weaponry like the flamethrowers and you know napalm is going to rear its ugly head here in another couple of operations. So you know these things were needed in this war to for it to be successful. Bill, do you got anything else you want to add to this one? No, it's true. I was I was resisting the temptation to make a snide remark about some of the belligerence in the European theater operation. When you said these guys weren't just going to throw up their hands and give up. Uh, right. The Japanese never did that. No, no, they did not. Or not that I know of. Maybe they did. And maybe somebody will let us know, but not to my knowledge. Mm-hmm. There were no mass surrenders of Japanese ever. So while it's a, uh, you know, pinprick in the, in, in the, Overall history of the Pacific War, it's nevertheless an important one, and we hope that we conveyed that message to you in this specific episode. So with that, we want to thank you very much for listening in on our conversation. Please subscribe to the Unauthorized History of the Pacific War podcast wherever you receive your podcast. Give us a rating and review. We do appreciate it. Also, as always, if you want to see the video version of this, check out our YouTube channel with the same name, Unauthorized History of the Pacific War Podcast. Please do subscribe and like to those videos there. It helps other people find our show. If you have a question, send us an email at unauthorizedpacificpodcast at gmail.com. So once again, my name is Seth Parrott, and I want to say thank you very much for listening, watching. Bill. And I'm Bill Toady. We will see you again next week.